There we go. Oh, we're live. We are live. Supposed to be doing like hosting things now. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I have notes, don't I? All right. Uh, hey, welcome, live listeners. Long time no here, I guess. Uh, <laughs> this is Montreal Sauce, and uh, if you're listening live, you're hearing this voice from the far reaches of Canada. If you're listening to the recorded recorded podcast, well, this voice is simply handsome ones and zeros on your device. And I promise not to mingle with other data. Um, on this show, we'd like to talk to makers and people with unique perspectives in the digital world. Um, my name is Chris. I'm an American living the Canadian dream. And with me, as always, is my <laughs> Michigan benefactor and guardian angel, Paul. Hello. How's, how's it going? Yeah? I'm all right. Excellent. Things are good. And as much as I want to introduce our next guest like a classy radio or TV show, instead I like to tell myself the best person for that job is the guests themselves. Uh, so tonight we have with us um, Dr. Rick Kopak from the University of British Columbia. Rick, share with our listeners what you do there, your particular area of interest and, uh, you know, your favorite flammable liquid, whatever you like. Okay, well, uh, I am a faculty member at the... Uh, I school, uh, formerly the School of Library Archival and Information Studies at the University of British Columbia, uh, in an effort to update image and content and all that stuff. Uh, we're moving into the 21st century by calling ourselves I school now, and uh, kind of uh, provides a different orientation and, as I said, perspective to the work we do. Uh, I've been teaching here since 2000, so uh, I was the millennial hire. That's uh, how I like to describe <laughs> myself. Uh, and uh, my areas of specialization are generally human-computer interaction, uh, but i uh, more specifically involved in uh, doing research and teaching in the area of information design. So uh, what I do in those courses, especially uh, those courses, is to look at the sociocognitive aspects of information use and uh, how people or how we can create digital documents so that people can sort of leverage uh, the advantages and affordances provided to electronic documents as opposed to the traditional paper-based ones. So it's a very human perspective uh, and technologies involved to the degree that uh, – more and more information is being delivered in a digital format. And uh, so that's, in a nutshell, anyway, the kinds of things I do. Uh, and uh, I can talk about any one of those things uh, in more detail <laughs> in terms of uh, inflammable drinks or flammable drinks. What's the difference? <laughs> I I don't think there is a difference, isn't that? The I don't think so. I don't think so. Martinis. Uh, uh, not necessarily inflammable, but uh, <laughs> maybe as uh, dangerous. Yes. <laughs> Information design. Okay, this is why every time we've talked before, you're just like, yeah, I teach. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's why they have us, you know. We like to think it's for other reasons, but if we weren't educators, we wouldn't be here, I don't think. <laughs> but... Uh, yeah, well, the information design, if you want me to go on about, about that, yeah. uh, I have two courses in, in, uh, on that topic. And uh, one is on kind of more architectural principles of information design. And so when we were talking about information systems, you know, uh, it's very much a design perspective as opposed to more traditional uh, business or computer science oriented uh, uh, point of view. So we're focused much more on that. Uh, human uh, document connection more than specifically the particular widgets that we might develop uh, to uh, provide certain affordances to a uh, computer app or a software application that's something that's more traditionally done uh, in something like computer science. We've sort of flipped, uh, just a more general level, we sort of flipped human-computer interaction, HCI, which has um, really come out of computer science many years ago and has a long tradition uh, in that discipline is spread uh, out to other disciplines as well because it's uh, quite interdisciplinary in that regard, especially psychology is uh, 
a huge influence on some of the underlying theories and perspectives in HCI. But we sort of in the school here and certainly within the larger community have uh, focused more and sort of uh, kind of angled our perspective more on what I would call human information interaction. I always like to characterize it as uh, when the See, I can remember, unlike you fellas, I can tell, I <laughs> uh, remember a time before the web. Uh, I can remember getting my first uh, ISP and uh, my first uh, 1200 baud modem. I can remember the huge, I'm sort of diverging or sort of going off on a tangent here, but I just put <laughs> things in perspective about how far we've come really. Is, oh, you can is, throw down as much as you like, but I had a 300 baud modem. So. Well, I would say, I, you notice I said I... Graduate, or meant to say, I graduate. I can still remember getting my first phone, <laughs> which, by the way, did clock down to three hundred when required. The, uh, but it was so uh, uh, remarkable at that time uh, when browsers uh, using web browsers and, and actually bringing up documents on on the, your computer screen. It sort of was the first time uh, that I really kind of understood the impact of of uh, digital information and the way it was delivered in that particular way through the web that people could now actually reach out and touch the information because uh, we had things called and still do these things called links uh, where uh, we could be reading and touching and going someplace else. So we're really it was the first time that I can remember where people were, although there were hypertext environments prior to that, but in a big, large-scale uh, public way, it was the first time that where people were actually navigating, okay, or interacting with a software application, the, the browser, uh, through the information itself. So we didn't have uh, sort of, it wasn't mediated by uh, uh, kind of, affordances uh, that we might find in more typical software applications like certain buttons that enable us to do things or uh, uh, underlining, you know, a typical Word document uh, application where the interface was much more integral. In a sense, a web browser, we don't notice it, okay? When we're interacting with information, we're dealing with the information and we're traveling through that information space. And so the browser uh, uh, becomes... uh, sort of less of a presence. And so when I felt like I could reach out and touch the information, it really had a dramatic effect on the way I started thinking about things, which sort of leads into my lifelong uh, interest that kind of shows up in the work I do about how we can actually structure and think about that information in this new environment uh, that enables uh, us to sort of uh, couple together, more tightly couple together, kind of the movement through the information with the comprehension and understanding of it. Uh, So that's kind of, in a general sense, uh, the types of things that I have been doing. And, uh, of course, we're limited uh, by uh, the technology itself, although it offers a lot, certainly in terms of immediacy and access and all those things and and volume. Uh, But... uh, uh, more, uh, some of the things that we've been looking at are sort of integrating uh, kind of reading tools. That's essentially what I've been working on for many, many uh, years now is the development and testing of various reading tools that enable people to interact with that information in a more dynamic, uh, uh, interesting, hopeful, hopefully anyway, way. So we've looked at various annotation components in an individual level, social annotation components uh, for reading uh, environments. Uh, specifically at the university, we look at journal reading environments, so scholarly journals that students are required to look at, you know, how we can represent them and, and, and give people uh, these reading tools that, that really sort of bring the, the use of the information or the consumption of the information through reading and the, and the creative process of doing something with that information mm. and providing tools at the level of the, infor- uh, at the interface where those things are much closer together. So if you can think uh, when you're in school, you know, you were given an assignment by your teacher to write an essay. Uh, you went and you looked at some books or some journal articles and you maybe took notes 
in a notepad or you underlined in the journal article. You set those aside. You got your typewriter out or your word processor, your pencil and paper, and you started writing. Uh, well, we're kind of looking at ways that we can bring those things closer together so there isn't so much distance between that consumption part, mm-hmm. the reading part, uh, and the, the creating part of the writing part so that uh, – for example, annotation enables you to kind of capture that intellectual capital, that thinking that you're doing when reading that journal article, or it could be a web page. You know, there's lots of different formats here. Uh, how uh, you can sort of capture your thinking at that point, exactly when the thinks when the thinking's going on. You know, you can add a little annotation and uh, do some highlighting in the article and associate the annotation with the highlight. And then uh, if it's in a, in a public venue or a social, there's a social component, other people can comment on that, and that's creating even more capital. And uh, if uh, it then is required that you do something, as we often are, we don't just read for <laughs> pleasure all the time, uh, that we can easily uh, take those intermediate traces of what I keep calling this intellectual capital and kind of bring them into a, a workspace or a creative environment where we can sort of start – manipulating and nuancing it instead of looking at that blank page. So when I think what it might be, uh, you've got your annotations and that's a good one, that's not so good. Well, I'm just going to click these buttons next to the really good ones and they're automatically going to be loaded in my workspace and mm-hmm. so that I can start writing around that rather than having to sort of start with that first keystroke. That's the kind of thing. So when I look at you can kind of see the relationship there more between the use of the information uh, directly uh, through the screen uh, without worrying too much uh, about kind of a separate interface elements. We want to integrate those capabilities like with these reading tools more directly into the actual use of the information. So design, well, uh, how can we also create... Uh, uh, systems, not, that's more on the system side rather, but on the document side, you know, what can we do with electronic documents themselves in terms of how we structure them to make them more useful and usable for people? And we've got lots of technologies that we can use uh, for that, uh, you know, straightforward ones like using CSS with HTML. Uh, you know, you throw in some JavaScript or some jQuery, and then we can start manipulating. Uh, documents and presenting them in in ways that are most usable by a person at a particular point in time. Mm -hmm. So if you're just looking at something for the first time, I'll go back to the journal article again because that's what we deal with because I work mostly in a – well, I certainly work in an educational environment, but (laughs) my focus is also on that environment. So students and and, and working at university. So, uh, you know – how can you create um, new ways of, of uh, or come up rather with new ways of creating documents that leverage the capabilities offered by the technology? And uh, so uh, very simple things would be, as we know, people don't ordinarily read on the web. Okay, they scan. <laughs> uh, so there are ways we can structure our information that way, but we can also use interactive components so that maybe we have progressive disclosure of that complete document. We sort of give the highlights uh, of what that uh, document's about and what the information is, and people can click on it as as parts they're more interested in, and of course they can expand out in some way, or uh, then we can start revealing annotations or all kinds of other things that uh, can help add context and interpretation to that information that you don't necessarily need to be hit with when you're first looking at it. (laughs) So, I mean, there's a long uh, research history and how people use information and we try to leverage some of what we know about that and, and make it uh, uh, or utilize it in, in these more advanced uh, reading environments. Uh, And we, what we do here is we look, I mean, our focus is not, we're not developers, and that's what really distinguishes us maybe from – and probably I'll get pushback on this, but <laughs> uh, maybe distinguishes what we do um, from what uh, people working in computer science do. We're more focused on content and the, and the relationship of, and use of that content 
within a particular technological environment uh, more than on the technologies itself. So that's why when I say we're kind of angling and calling what we do more human information interaction as opposed to human computer interaction. And uh, so our focus is more on the, on the structure of, of text. Uh, and I speak text, I mean all kinds of things, video. It doesn't have to be just uh, sure. yeah. written text. But uh, f- focus on how people use information and then try to give them ways of do, using it better, uh, using the uh, capabilities offered by these fancy digital things we have nowadays. Of all kinds, you know, mobile, desktop, uh, who knows? I see. So, so then the students you send out uh, end up working with the developers or the, hopefully the developers come yeah, to I them. Think, and- uh, certainly that's part of the evolution of, of uh, a, a department like mine. Uh, it used to be uh, in the old days that we focused mostly on educating professionals to go out and work in traditional information institutions and organizations. So librarians, archivists, other kinds of information professionals, and that's still uh, an important aspect of what we do, at least in one of our, a couple of our degrees, which are more applied. Uh, and uh, But uh, migrating or moving into the iSchool movement sort of tries to broaden that out so that we're now preparing people for a broader uh, uh, application of their talents and skills that they get here. Uh, sure. Because, you know, these days, everything's information, right? So, yeah, yeah. I think, I, I think when you look at the um, sort of the rise of the personal computer, um, maybe going back to the Macintosh and even before that, a lot of what you did using a computer was – helping you create documents for an old-fashioned format, which was to have it printed off on paper uh, and easing the process of making that happen without wasting so much paper and ink, right? And uh, and now we have to prepare professionals for uh, the idea that they could create information of all kinds that that is hyperlinked no matter what um, – no matter what field that's in, right? You're not just – on some level, everybody's dealing with information. It's an information economy, and we have, to be, we have to be fluent in the tools no matter what the profession on some level now. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean we still uh, – information has to be bundled in some way. There has yep. to be uh, some kind of intervention. It could be an automatic process where – uh, you know, a machine will create it in a certain way, but somebody has to design the algorithms that are used and the structures, uh, you know, whether it's uh, using some uh, back-end technology based on XML or, you know, people have to come up with the schemas uh, that, mm-hmm. will, that will describe that, those documents and the schemas are typically created based on the, um, the use of the document and uh, the structure of the kind of information. Uh, we we don't. I mean, we think uh, where we utilize genres uh, in in more traditional publications, and that crosses over certainly into the uh, digital environment, where we have to kind of apply uh, what we know about how the document or the information will be used uh, with how we structure it. So, to go back to my running example here, is if we think of uh, journal articles. So that's a good example in a way because everybody's kind of read a journal article at some point. They know what they're about, but they have a particular uh, genre uh, to them. Uh, a typical research article have uh, you know abstract introduction, uh, uh, methods and procedures, uh, results and discussion, conclusions, and everybody knows that that's the typical uh, organizational structure of that journal article. And they'll use that structure implicitly depending on what they want to know. So if you're just starting to look to write your essay, again, in this educational environment, Mm -hmm. you're not going to be getting and reading these articles start to finish in every case. You're going to look at particular components of them that uh, have high value for uh, this uh, triage that typically occurs at the front end of the research process. Is this a good article for my purpose? What is good about it? So, you know, you read things like the abstract or you may quickly look at the conclusions to see what 
the major outcomes were. Uh, if it's a good one, if it's a keeper, then you put it in pile A. If it's meh, you know, I have to think about it some more, it goes in pile B. And then uh, the rest go in pile C. So there are ways that people utilize what they know about the structure of articles to help, in this case, identify it in the initial state anyway or stage their utility. Uh, or if they're looking for particular kinds of information within that article, they'll know to go to particular sections. And that is across most of uh, written knowledge that these operate on these identifiable genres uh, and it creates expectations uh, about the arrangement of different kinds of information. So what we do in, in our document-centered information design is to utilize what we know about how people think about a particular kind of information and then give them tools for uh, helping with that. And uh, so that's kind of at the core of, of at least uh, information design as I see it. And then, of course, there's all uh, – cognate areas of graphical design and, uh, you know, people will think of information design more typically, I think, as uh, visualization, for example. That's a mm-hmm. really good example uh, Example of uh, kind of a more uh, typical view of information design is how can we uh, get the biggest bang for the buck in one picture. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, it, you know, it's the principles, underlying principles aren't so different is that we're trying to communicate and we're trying to make uh, – uh, or communicate this information with the least effort, uh, which is increasingly required because of this huge volume of information that we're typically faced with. We have to be very efficient. So we have to think of creative ways of doing that. And so we can either do it through something like, well, not either, but one way of doing it is through something like visualization, or we can do it through more kind of advanced interaction tools that we can create so that people can find and utilize the precise kind of information they needed for whatever their task is. Because most of this is is task driven you know mm-hmm. this you don't invent tools without a purpose and the purpose is usually described or um, uh, identified by the task people have what what is their goal what do they want to do and yep. how are we going to help them do that um, so anyway that's uh, that's kind of what we do or at least I do and a number of our my colleagues certainly do we have a very strong department in this thing and uh, we are looking more increasingly I think at uh, how we can look more closely at the process of information comprehension and understanding and using that about what people are learning as they're reading uh, or moving through a particular information space how they can utilize what they're learning to help navigate through that information. So we're mm-hmm. looking for ways of mapping uh, our use, our ingestion, our use of the information with the navigational structures that we can build into that information. That's a really interesting area. Uh, and, and, you know, we do things, uh, we call it, uh, one of the terms we use for that is uh, kind of semantic navigation, is that we're, we're kind of moving through the information based on our ability to articulate our information need through the increased understanding we get as we're, we're reading and and mm-hmm. absorbing the information. Uh, so yeah, it's a pretty interesting area, I guess. And uh, the other thing I'm currently working on with a fellow, um, not, not a colleague that's currently at Haifa University, uh, was at University of Alberta, actually, in Edmonton. And uh, we're looking at uh, information quality and uh, how people assess quality of information uh, yeah. in these environments. And uh, so we've been doing what we think is interesting work in that area as well and trying to identify <clears throat> uh, what parts or identifiable components of information are more easily judged to be good or bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, we found quite some interesting uh, – had some quite interesting results about – uh, how people f- find it much easier to judge whether information is uh, is good or bad along certain dimensions than it is on others. So an example would be uh, people generally find it easier to judge information. Uh, you know, think of Wikipedia articles or something sure, like that, yeah. just to focus it. 
uh, people find it uh, much easier to consistently judge across a large number of people doing these judgments. They find it much easier to agree on whether something is complete. You know, we define completeness as having mm-hmm. a beginning and an end and a middle, and there are certain components that people can agree uh, make this look like it's a complete article, which is a recognized dimension of information quality. Uh, and uh, also something like uh, representation. Is, uh, does it follow uh, a consistent structure and uh, are the headings clear and is it communicating properly through uh, these, uh, the way it's been presented to the individual? So uh, there's been lots of interesting study to, studies to show that representation really affects people's mm-hmm. uh, judgments of quality. So a, a cheesy-looking website is information rich and as good as it may be is judged less quality having less quality than something that is much more quote professional looking Uh, but we find that people find it much easier or are much more able to agree on on quality based on things like representation and completeness than they are about things like objectivity and accuracy okay because there's much more (laughs) there's much more inconsistency about judgments on the same information across a group of people. And that makes sense when you think about it because judgments of completeness and representation are more accessible to people. We kind of look at it from the perspective of uh, using kind of uh, heuristics to make these judges, kind of rules of thumb uh, that people can use. And because there's a much closer relationship between the idea of completeness and the actual physical manifestations of it, you can see it's got a beginning, middle, end and all that stuff. Uh, Whereas, uh, so it's, we see that there's much greater levels of agreement because those there's a there's a less distance between the the semantic and physical components of that if you will i mean people sure. kind of yeah whereas objectivity if you're not a domain expert or, or accuracy if you're not a domain you know nothing about that area how who are you to judge whether it's accurate or objective <laughs> so there are other elements that come into play there and uh, we're kind of looking at uh what you know what's that, what's that all about and uh, and what, what are the practical outcomes of that? Well, uh, maybe we're thinking of some way that we could indicate through some kind of social contribution, you know, kind of crowdsourcing quality uh, assessment of various online information objects or documents or whatever. So, uh, you know, uh, and we know at what level people may be making those assessments of quality and we Mm -hmm. know that we might get them for example if you look at wikipedia now they actually have a capacity for people to judge the quality of the article based on a number of 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 these dimensions i keep talking about maybe that's something that we should get to look into more closely is um, not just asking a general is this a good or bad article but Ask them, is this a good or bad article based on these different criteria? Sure. And then we get a much more nuanced uh, sort of idea. And uh, uh, we know when people are are judging the quality based on whether it looks good as opposed to whether their domain experts can actually see that it's a a high-quality article based on the content. So that's just another direction that uh, we've been looking at. And it's not – of course, not unrelated to the other part that I was talking about earlier. Anyway, that's uh, certainly what we spend our fill our hours doing, aside from all the other things. <laughs> I feel like students. I feel like there's a uh, dimension of complexity in any given document as well, because um, you talked about being potentially a domain expert versus being a layperson, and the layperson maybe wanting to understand. Uh, you know, a very high level view of whether that's quantum physics or some, you know, equally complicated thing that, boy, you could, you could learn forever about this and still not even be a domain expert. And at the same time, you have people who are domain experts there that can, that can elevate a document or decide, you know, this is a great beginner's intro. This is quantum physics 101, but this isn't, um, you know, this isn't a high level document and being able to ju- make those judgments as well. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's what's behind it all is that, uh, you know, you want um, your Nobel laureate who's read the article and give it the th- thumbs up, uh, maybe a little more cred than <laughs> sure than, uh, uh, than Denise, who's a grade 8 student at uh, some, <laughs> some junior high school. So no, nothing against Denise, but uh, exactly that is that you want to kind of, like I say, have a much more nuanced uh, mm-hmm. uh, way of people's – and that, yeah, that's kind of uh, – the hard part is establishing how people uh, present their bona fides, right? I mean anybody in an online environment can say pretty much anything about who they are. Uh, those become the real practical issues about even if we develop these different rating scales that people can use or, sure. or, yeah. or participate in, in using, uh, they're still uh, kind of based on the honor system. And, you know, we kind of know how well that <laughs> yeah. may work on any, in any given. Uh, yeah, we have to figure out on top of that how do we, you know, how do we rate each other or keep each other in check so that we, sure. we know how to elevate the, the right people. Yeah, and I right. think uh, I don't know much about this, but one of my colleagues was doing some interesting work in uh, online gaming environments, and actually did uh, some interviews with because uh, there's a hierarchy within these. Uh, <laughs> uh, yes, there is <laughs> sort of gaming environments where there's acknowledged experts, and uh, they ex- often will you know provide uh, 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 advice on on aspects of the game or they're at least perceived to be uh, uh, mentors, okay, when it comes to uh, helping people uh, do better at the game or to achieve some uh, particular level. Uh, and there are these acknowledged experts and there are is a way that uh, the gaming community recognizes this kind of uh, accomplishment-based hierarchy and uh, people are treated accordingly when it comes to uh, um, suggestions they may make and the uh, more communicative components of that gaming environment. Mm-hmm. But uh, So I guess it's possible. I guess it, it's just difficult to do in a, in a generalized. Yeah. Circle. I mean, if yeah. it's a community, uh, uh, whether it be a community of practice or a community of play, then there is rules that develop. Uh, about how people interact with one another and so on, but it's hard to do that in a nebulous Lars. sort of. <laughs> it's it's hard to bring that concept to the entire internet. <laughs> yes, very difficult indeed, and uh, I don't hold out great hope that we'll do better. <laughs> so I'm not sure what the uh, what the answer is to that one, but yeah. Yeah, I think of when I think of hypermedia, um obviously the thing that we're all <laughs> the thing that probably everybody's most familiar with is the idea of stumbling on a Wikipedia page and then losing 2 to 3 hours of your day clicking from Wikipedia article to Wikipedia article learning, you know, fascinating things that you may never need to know again, but uh, but it's just fun to consume that information and it's fun to link from thing to thing. Like you say, navigate your way through the information. Um, the original thing that I think of is going back to uh hypercard. Uh, oh, I love that program. Yeah. Yeah. There's, I still don't feel like there's anything like it from a, from a tool to create an interactive document standpoint. I don't think there's, a, there is anything like it really. Um, you can do a lot of the things that it did, uh, using web pages and and HTML, but I I still feel like it's a much more cumbersome process than HyperCard made it. Yeah, I think. Uh, well, I think there was a certain uniformity that uh, was imposed on on the creator in using HyperCard. <laughs> yes. it, that was a good thing, you know. Yeah, I think what right. it did was, uh, you know, it you know all design has constraints, and uh, I think it provided some nice constraints in terms of uh, the common look and feel. And, uh, um, you know, we also have to remember that it was a time when it really was a pretty kind of small world. 
Yep. And uh, it, it wasn't sort of this worldwide phenomenon like it is today, the web is today. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I think in some ways we didn't have to be – that uniformity or that homogeneity was much more acceptable because uh, – you know, we didn't have any other models and uh, uh, advertising typically wasn't involved or you know, there's a lot of <laughs> sure. other things that yeah. uh, to sort of uh, play into that uh, dynamic now. But there was something elemental. I, I'm, ho- I'm wholly in agreement on this one. There was something – it really hit a sweet spot in terms of that balance between the volume or amount of information you could put on any one mm-hmm. card – Yep. Okay, uh, and uh, and the ease with which it could be connected with. I mean, it was very much more elemental, if I can use that term, much more, much closer to that that node link sort of idea that sometimes gets lost in uh, these very complex environments that we we work in and read in and create in, in today. Uh, but I did. I really. It, I don't know. I really missed it when Apple dropped <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. HyperCard. And there's uh, a question for you. What was the most current Apple available when HyperCard was still? Oh, boy. Um, that'd be like. It, it, it seems like uh, it seems like HyperCard was still running on um, on OS nine, but I think they I think they stopped making it and selling it well before that. I think it was probably like System 7, maybe 7.5. Yeah, no, I was trying to remember that the other day. Uh, but, yeah, no, it's been a while. But uh, I actually worked quite a bit with HyperCard. Uh, one of my first, this is when I was doing one of my previous degrees. I got a job. No, it wasn't a job. It was a uh, a course, like an independent study course. Mm. And... Uh, I had to create the uh, in the um, science uh, Sigma Samuel Library at University of Toronto. They wanted they had about forty Mac classics uh, out in the common area that people <laughs> could uh, kind of look up and figure out how they would use the card catalog and how sure. they would find yep. particular kinds of information. And in my day, it was called bibliographic instruction. Nowadays, it's called information literacy. Uh, but uh, that was my first uh, kind of real project using HyperCard other than for my own was to create uh, some of the searching stacks for that uh, BI application that Sigma Samuel Library had at U of T so students could uh, first year, second year students could sit down and figure out how they could subject search uh, a card catalog and uh, uh so that was my substantial experience. I mean, I used it much more than that, but that was uh, one I got paid for. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's, I just have nostalgia for it. I, 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 do, I do agree that there was something that it uniquely captured that was sort of lost as we moved forward uh, and maybe closer to what Ted Nelson was talking about. So... Although I guess his Xanadu system is now available, and uh, although I haven't seen it, the world's uh, longest-running piece of vaporware, apparently. <laughs> well, I was going to say um, it's. It feel I feel like uh, Apple has sort of carried on, uh, not necessarily HyperCard, but that sort of design process throughout because. Uh, we've commented on the show before um, talking about, you know, just iOS in general when it comes to the iPad and the iPhone. Like their versions don't happen as quickly as like Android and other operating systems. And when they do, they don't change the entire interface. Like, they, the you know, the iPhone had the same interface all the way up until version 7, I think, right? Mm-hmm. That's when everything changed. Yep, yep. So you it comes down to like kind of like you guys were discussing like the navigation and everything is it's limited but it's tight because they've handed out the tools for developers like here's the button to use and this is where you put it and so that it's just free flowing but yet it's in the same system that's recognizable and people can easily operate it yeah absolutely i think uh 
you know, this is depending on your point of view. There, well, there, there's vice and virtue in everything. And for many years, Apple people complained about Apple as kind of being this uh, kind of fascist orientation where they forced <laughs> everybody to be doing the same thing all the time. But uh, as I tell my classes, you know, human factors rule number one is consistency above everything. Uh, you can have a bad design, but as long as you're consistent in the way you present it, people will adapt. And I think that not that Apple, I'm saying they've done bad designs, not my intention there, but the idea of consistency uh, yeah. and the application and control that they have over the development of their apps where developers need to kind of follow the plan uh, creates a lot of opportunity. How opportunity? Well, you can simplify because everybody knows. You don't have to explain everything. Everybody knows right. yeah. uh, what the, uh, how to manipulate, uh, uh, you know, whether it be on your iPhone or your iPad. Uh, and there's a degree of expectation and consistency there that just, uh, enables actually, I think, developers to do more because they're not constrained by people's inability to figure out what they want them to do. And uh, and if you look at the iOS guidelines, you're looking at I think about 450 pages of design guidelines. So they've they've obviously thought it out. <laughs> and uh, they've got a little something there for every contingency. Uh, in, one, in my class that I one of my classes I just finished. Uh, People were more and more people are now as their design project to uh, prototyping iPhone and iPad apps, and mm. so you can see uh, the effect of a well-established uh, and enforced set of guidelines like the um, iOS uh, uh, design guidelines, and uh, sort of the effects that it does that they do have is that uh, that's the constraint developers work with in. And uh, the thing is, the beauty comes in presenting something that's fully engaging uh, in their own particular way, given their own uh, view of the world, the developers and designers I'm talking about, uh, but presented in a way that, that provides an infrastructure that's common for everybody. And, and uh, so that's, I think, the beauty there is designing within those constraints that Apple imposes. Um, so I'm not sure, I'm not sure where that came from or I answered the question there, but, uh, no, I, I, I was just going to say, I, um, through, uh, through research, uh, before our discussion, I was creeping around the internet because you can do that. And I founded like a couple of, uh, syllabi for your classes and, um, and a list of like links that uh, students could go to to help them and sort of back to the information design and uh, interactivity with like your information. Um, I think one of those links brought me eventually as I, like Paul said, sort of swirled down the hole in clicking links and learning new things. I had found this whole page that was um, dedicated to the idea because of current iOS trend is all the flat icons. So this web page was like, you know, what's what's better in a design sense, like the flat versus like the old school beveled buttons. And that whole website was um, designed in uh, with like the um, I forget what the technical term is, uh, Paul, but like where you can just keep scrolling endlessly, um, and you just kept learning about like the different. Um, this is how people present and design things with flat icons, and this is how they do it. And eventually, as you scrolled, it would say, so which one do you like? Mm. And then you would click on it, and it didn't take you to another page. Again, through the magic of uh, HTML5, Like it just brought you into a game because you were now the character you chose when it just was like a silly <laughs> a silly fighting game. Yeah, but. Yeah. It was just interesting, kind of uh, like Rick was saying, like, you know, this web page kind of kept you on the same page and the information changed around you, the user, instead of you sort of following hyperlinks, taking you other places, which in the background it was really doing. But <laughs> yeah, you just made me think about that when we were talking about iOS. Yeah. The, um, yeah, the other thing I was thinking about, I guess, uh, or was brought to mind was this is kind of the idea of kind of to go off on a tangent again is this idea of serendipity. 
And uh, when you're saying you're endlessly scrolling there or clicking on links, uh, that's sort of – I went to a workshop uh, a couple years ago where it was on serendipity and, and uh, the question was, can you create it? Mm. Now, to me, that's an interesting question is can you create serendipity uh, or can you plan for it? How can you plan for the ineffable or how can you plan for something that people really don't understand how it happens when a, light, a switch goes off and, and uh, you have insight into something or something you see uh, causes you to think in a certain way? Uh, I suppose maybe an interesting question there is whether or not we can design for that kind of thing. Uh, that one I don't know. That was a very interesting workshop, and I think there were lots of ideas uh, about it. But, you know, to some degree, I think we talk about design and all this and guidelines and and so on. But sometimes I think we just have to stop and kind of let people do what they need to do. I'm just wondering, maybe the best design environment is one where we design for freedom. I don't... uh, I think that's a high-level goal that I'm not sure I would know. It's one of those things where you kind of think that's a great idea, but how would you do it? You know, how would you <laughs> sure. maximize, given a kind of a generalized user population, how would you necessarily maximize people's um, ability to draw something useful okay, out of their uh, kind of ongoing uh, information activities and something like the web? Anyway, I kind of got off track there. Sorry. No, no. Uh, that's, that's what we do here. Yeah, get off track? <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Okay. Oh, I'm good at that. It's a, it's a show made of rat holes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that we just go down. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's the old rule, right? Keep it simple, stupid. So, you know, the, I feel like the more simple you keep something, you know, for, for me, I was always uh, – Always for the last few years, anyway. I I have enjoyed using Twitter because the whole thing is here's 140 characters, do what you like, mm-hmm. and then you get to Facebook, and now you can post pictures and you can share documents, and there's an email component. And it's just there's so many other things going on. It almost feels more restricted because you don't have the freedom of Twitter where you can, you know, you can, if you want, at one point you could, you know, have your Kindle tweet, you know, (laughs) Chris just finished a book, you know, it's just, there's, there's a lot of freedom. I think like you were talking about freedom in Twitter because it's just such a simple platform, like this is it, you know. And developers were able to um, develop things that, you know, maybe Twitter never probably envisioned in the beginning to uh, interact with it. So that's usually the way those things work out is they sort of start something Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, it just can go off in any any direction. I think Twitter is another good example of how oftentimes the most interesting things are Mm -hmm. those things done within identifiable constraints. You know, uh, so uh, I guess that's where I'm kind of hedging around it because I can't really clarify in my own mind what that relationship is there. You know, you said it quite well that in a way there's freedom there. Uh, I think maybe what's the basis of that freedom? I think it's maybe the system somehow, even though it is constraining, uh, has less control over you. Uh, I don't know if that makes sense. No, uh, I I think it makes sense. I mean, yeah, you know, or as you're saying with Facebook, you know, almost dominated by, you know, what what Facebook's expectations are of you. Uh, they're much more complex and varied, and uh, you know, and then uh, sometime if, to participate in that environment, you sort of I think against your will sometimes <laughs> are, are needing to. Uh, you know, make updates and add this and add that and the other thing because this is, that's what it, that's what Facebook is and that's what it's expecting you to do. Um, you know, there's something uh, elemental again about Twitter. You know, it's like a haiku, I guess, compared to 
some elaborate narrative poem or something. Yeah, yeah. I think, I mean, it's very easy to try to compare the two as social networks um, because you've got Twitter, which I think still is the much more simple model of uh, very short messages. Uh, You can attach photos to your tweets now uh, and you can can always post links inside of your tweets. Um, But the only real privacy settings you have are either Lock down completely private, approve everybody, or uh, be completely public. And then when you go onto the Facebook side, uh, like you said, Chris, there's there's far fewer limits in terms of what you can post or how you can interact. Um, there's you know the like button, and uh, of course there's a myriad complexity of <laughs> privacy settings. Who do I want to post to? Which friends can see this? Which friends can't see this? Um, do I am I trying to like my friend's page or their actual wall or their post? And it it it, it does the overhead of complexity is uh, is pretty high. But on the other hand, the richness of the information can also be a lot higher because of that. So sure, yeah. I guess it comes down again to what your goals are, you know, and what the purposes at hand are, and uh, kind of look at what the map matches between what those goals are and and uh, the facility with which that application enables you to achieve those goals and certainly the two comparing twitter and facebook are notice notably different i mean that's yeah. pretty obvious and yeah. uh, so i guess the the decision whether one uh, or w- what the whether one's better than the other or whether one's good and one's not so good just is more related to those uh, goals and tasks involved than it is to uh, uh, actually comparing the two. Um, but I do have to say that I feel I'm not a big Facebook person. I guess I feel, <laughs> I feel it's burdensome. I think that uh, uh, there's actually been some interesting uh, studies as well on mapping personality types, of course, onto uh, the use of things like Facebook. And uh, I find in my own uh, that uh, uh, is certainly the case. You know, I'm, my Myers-Briggs type is INTP, and uh, so I think that limits uh, my uh, enjoyment and the utility seen in using something like Facebook. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I again, I think it has multiple purposes or it enables multiple sure, purposes yeah. as well. I mean, there's nothing really, I think, better than Facebook when you just want to, kind of let your friends know what's happening, you know, uh, in terms of a kind of a, kind of a, a push system of this is what I'm, I'm doing and this is how I'm feeling. Uh, but uh, that's essentially what I use it for is that if something happens, I'll, I'll post, but it's not a, it's not a uh, hour by hour, day by day communication device for me. Mm-hmm. It's more of a state of the world device for me. Mm-hmm. This is, this is, Kind of what's important that's happened. Anyway, there's no uh, big insight there. I think it's uh, interesting that, uh, as you're saying earlier, the Facebook is the kind of opportunities it offers along all those different dimensions. Uh, the downside being uh, kind of the level of commitment that it may require if you want to be a yeah. real kind of uh, yeah. u- user of it. And, and, you know, the worry it might create. I mean, I'm always paranoid about signaling all my activities sure. inadvertently. Yeah, what are they and, doing uh, with my information? And Well, it's like the guy on Amazon where uh, he uh, was on Valentine's Day. This is sort of my, I guess, apocryphal story. But I think this <laughs> one actually happened. Is that uh, he was looking on Amazon. And, then, of course, you know, they sell everything. And it was around Valentine's Day. And he saw this this ad or a product listing. I don't know how he stumbled across it, but it was for a <laughs> sort of like a 45 gallon drum of, of personal lubricant. <laughs> and since it was on uh, around Valentine's day, he made a smart ass comment about, Oh, well, you know, Valentine's day is coming up. And apparently uh, he, you know, made a posting on the actual uh, commenting on the article. And so they took, or the product rather, and uh, so they took his comments and made it into a testimonial and said that <laughs> Paul thinks that uh, having a 
you know, a 45 gallon drum of personal lubricant on uh, Valentine's Day is, is, is uh, the best thing since uh, whatever. Uh, and this was being used as a testimonial on the product page. So yeah. click here to like. <laughs> yeah. Was yeah. this testimonial so, useful to you? <laughs> well, I'm sure he was surprised when his friends were phoning or uh, contacting him. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, definitely a scary thing for sure when that kind of stuff happens. Yeah. I show my age, you know, when I talk like this. Because I'm sure, <laughs> you know, I was not a, a early or late adopter really in a big way uh, in terms of the, using it as a communication. To, I mean, as a device to study and to look at and watch how people use it. If I, that's mm-hmm. what I do. But using it myself, not so much. So I may sound like an old fogey sometimes when I talk about some of these things. Well, I I just sort of drift on both sides because it seems like that's where the world is and I would like to interact with people. So I sometimes fall into those. But then, you know, when people are using like Foursquare and stuff to like post their location, I'm like, so you're not home right now? I really right. do like your laptop. Like, mm. you know, like, <laughs> yeah, it seems yeah. ridiculous to me that you're going to report where you are 24 hours a day, but okay. Yeah, well, there's, uh, yeah, there's certainly the security aspects of it as well. And, uh, and as we know, there'll be lots of people around that will be able to take advantage of that kind of information. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm always floored too when I see like more stuff come out like um, what was it Chevrolet like last time this year was like touting like there's an app for the car now and you can like start it from wherever you are and it's like well how many things are hacked daily that sounds like a right. bad idea <laughs> I lost my yeah. phone on the subway and now I lost my $30,000 car as well Yeah, yeah. I've got yeah. that app Chris it works really well <laughs> yes. <laughs> Even on my neighbor's car. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess that was the old, didn't the uh, Volkswagen uh, Super Bowl or two ago, didn't they have a sort of an ad that uh, played on uh, kind of remote starting and uh, sort of accessing uh, uh, your remember. car in various ways uh, remotely where the little kid was standing outside yeah, doing the Darth his Darth Vader. Vader thing. Yeah. Yep. And his uh, comedian dad started up the car from the kitchen. So <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> nice. So um, do you have a Kindle? Me? No. No? I um, – for no particular reason, I, I used I use my iPad. I guess, uh, although I certainly know what the advantages of having a Kindle or a Kobo would be. I'm uh, especially now because I've been reading more and more on the effects of blue light on sleep patterns. Yeah, yep. And uh, um, you know, I, I, I use my iPad uh, the greatest amount of time in the evening which is apparently the worst time to be using it uh, because <laughs> it, uh, it upsets your circadian rhythm because uh, you're not supposed to be uh, viewing uh, devices at that time of uh, the day that uh, are predominantly or have a um, uh, heavily uh, producing blue light uh, at that wavelength because uh, it's essentially telling you the day's starting. So waking up at uh, two in the morning for no apparent reason uh, starting to be, seems to be a bit of uh, a bit of something to that mm-hmm. especially here in Vancouver you know where the sun never shines through most of the <laughs> winter months uh, you know you're not getting I've got actually a blue light uh, little Phillips I think blue light panel in my office because our offices here have no windows in them <laughs> and uh, so I can sort of this time of year, especially, I can come in in the dark and go home in the dark, and uh, and so you get no sunlight or very little sunlight all day, and you go back and you sit down, and you got the TV on, and of course you're watching the TV, and then also looking at your iPad and reading an article while you're watching TV, and you're just inundated and uh, kind of. Uh, 
Yeah, your brain just keeps thinking it's daytime, it's daytime, it's daytime. Yeah, and so the sun's coming up, and uh, all of a sudden it's 10 or 11, and you're going to bed. But uh, yeah, so anyway, I think I might get myself a pair of those amber glasses. Apparently, they've got uh, oh, yeah. amber glasses yeah. you can wear in the evening now if you're going to be watching TV or using your iPad. Or the new Philips <laughs> uh, Hue lights, I think you can probably, mm-hmm. I'm not sure. That's something else now you can control with your iPhone. Uh, is the is the color, <laughs> the color temperature and intensity of all the lights, of, around of you, all yeah. the lights in your house? Um, but uh, I can just see you sitting in your living room with the amber glasses on. Your wife coming home saying, "Were you just at the shooting range?" What? That's right. Where's, where's your gun? The uh, yes. Oh, just my oh. iPad. The uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm sure that would be uh, uh, quite a sight. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, yeah, that'll once, be the, once, uh, uh, once a, um, a nerd, always a nerd, I guess, uh, <laughs> must be a more appropriate term there. I just can't come up. There's a better word that I wanted to use. That'll be the next upgrade of your, uh, of a uh, jawbone will be to have a, a sensor on it to see if there's blue light in the room and buzz at you and warn you, Hey, it's almost bedtime. You can't look at blue lights anymore. Well, you know, it gets back to this sort of uh, theme I was on earlier about when kind of the technology, at what point does the technology start to control you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, because we give credence to these things. You know, the the idea of, at least in the early days, there was a great book that was written uh, where the author distinguished between the great ages of computation and sort of the first age was kind of the age of automation. So if we go back years ago to the days of big iron, you know, these uh, uh, IBM 360, 67, and then the Amdahl came along, <laughs> and there was all these sort of general purpose business computers, but the big mainframes. And what they, their function was, in large part, was just to kind of do jobs that were repetitive. and But, you know, by a computer, it could be done much more accurately and certainly much more quickly sure. than having a human person do it. Uh, and, uh, and then we got into the age of augmentation. Okay. That's when, especially in the era of the PC, when we got, uh, things like Lotus. I don't know if you remember Lotus one, two, three. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, one of the first successful spreadsheets, uh, I think easy calc or something was another one at the time. Anyway, where we're starting to use computers, uh, on an individual basis as, uh, augmenting tools, you know, to help us do things better in our own personal lives or in our work lives. And I guess we're getting into the age now where it's, we need another A word there, age of (laughs) automation, age of augmentation, age of something where we're starting to maybe be controlled by our machines. Apathy. Uh, It could be, (laughs) yes. It used to be an apathy club at uh, early days when I went to University of Alberta. I uh, forget what it was called. But, you know, what I'm saying here is that at some point we sort of give up uh, the locus of control for a lot of our daily activities to um, to devices. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure at, at what point uh, that ceases to be a, a good thing. Uh, but, uh, you know, something uh, maybe to consider a bit more fully. Just when you mentioned the job, and that's what I was thinking of is that, you know, the first thing I do now when I get up in the morning is to check my sleep patterns. And uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and uh, and uh, to to confirm that yes, I actually was awake between two and three last night, and I know that's for sure. Not because I was up at two or three last night, but because my job will confirm that I was. <laughs> so uh, we do yeah. start giving, I think, probably inordinate credence to some of this. And I don't know if that's a personality-based thing, too. I mean, I love kind of collecting data and, and it becomes, doing something with it. Yeah, yeah. It becomes this thing that suddenly you're measuring and you have a number that you kind of want to beat or, or improve on. And you feel like uh, if you are tracking that – I've the thing that I've been tracking is not my sleep but uh, but my weight. I've started uh, trying to work out more and uh, and – I don't really have a lot of weight to lose, but I figure if I track that as I work out, that's something useful to measure. Um, and just having a number that goes along with how you feel is kind of an interesting 
uh, way to have something a little bit more concrete to it rather than just, ah, I kind of feel okay today or I uh, didn't feel great yeah. yesterday. So. Yeah. No, I think uh, that's absolutely, uh, you know, people like uh, some uh, trace indication of how things are going. And uh, so you can kind of signal improvement or when you need to get back on track. Uh, you know, and I think at the basis of most sort of gamification activities, that's that same urge, you know, yeah. is that in yep. a way, uh, I don't know if it's competition or not, but. Uh, you know, at least you have a baseline for comparison, and I need to do a little bit better. You know, yeah, and, sure. Uh, so that's all good. Yeah, that's all good, and I think that's sort of uh, optimally how uh, the devices can really contribute to yeah. one's well-being. Uh, I guess it's when you become too slavish towards the use <laughs> of them that uh, makes me a bit nervous. Uh, or when they or, become so when they become so automated that they start telling you what to do instead of just giving you the data and letting yeah, you make the decisions. I think decisions. that was my my issue is exactly that is you know uh, when the machines start telling us because uh, we, <laughs> yeah. we we do we give credence uh, I mean we offload that's what they're for sure uh, you know we offload a certain amount of uh, effort work whether it be cognitive or otherwise. And uh, I guess in a way that can be a slippery slope where there's a line there at which point, uh, you know, we, we shouldn't be going. It's different for everybody too, you know, and some people, I suppose, again, to go back to my Myers-Briggs analysis, there's probably certain personality types that much or like much more kind of having to be told what to do all the time uh, sure. or being uh, suggested what one do rather than uh, having to figure that out or or consider it in a more con context-sensitive way, uh, not so automatically done. Anyway, that's just that's opinion at uh, <laughs> ten after seven. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> on a dark, dark and stormy night, <laughs> the inky shadows. And into the inky shadows goes this particular episode of Montreal Sauce. But uh, stay subscribed, because next week we will be back with Rick once again to talk a little bit more about information design as well as talk about some of his favorite uh, books, movies, media, great stuff that we like to talk about on Montreal Sauce. I am Paul D. on Twitter, Paul DeLu, and uh, my co-host, as always, is Chris Sickinga. Uh, he is Sick Days, S-I-K-K-D-A-Y-S, on Twitter. Uh, and uh, head to MontrealSauce.com to take a look at the show notes for this episode. And if you would, do me a favor. As, uh, as a friend of the show, head to iTunes and give it a rating or uh or give it a review even um and be honest give us a you know whatever rating you feel we deserve whatever review you'd like to leave for us uh but that would be wonderful to give us a some feedback and b that can really help boost you in itunes which we would uh, really appreciate so uh thank you much and we will see you next week bye <laughs>